Dispatches from Afghanistan, Pangaea and poverty, the return of stoning and the loss of music. It has been one month since the Taliban took the presidential palace. So what has changed? It has been another whirlwind, heartbreaking and heart-rendering week, documenting the new epic that is Afghanistan. Yesterday marked one month since the Taliban took control of Kabul. Well, Afghans are some of the most resilient humans I have ever met. The state of the economy and the free fall into poverty is haunting to observe. Well, Afghanistan may no longer be headline news the way it was just a few weeks ago, I still feel very deeply committed to staying and documenting this strange new time. What is interesting to me is that even though a lot has changed over the past few weeks, a lot has also remained the same. I would describe the country as being in a kind of limbo period until the government is fully formed and the leadership and religious scholars determine the do's and don'ts of their interpretation of Sharia. Afghans remain in a holding period. For now, the focus is on being able to feed their families. And with the drastic hard cash shortage, I fear this is becoming a Sisyphean task. When you talk to many Afghans, they speak of epics defined by lives in perpetual conflict. There was the time of the Soviets and the ensuing civil war, the time of the Taliban and the time of the United States. Now it's the time of the Talibs again, only it is plagued by more uncertainty, more anxiety, and a nagging worry that they could all plunge into poverty atop it all. The transformation of Kabul, one month after the Taliban takeover. At the outset, the capital appears as though it is almost coming back to life. Wooden carts overstuffed with fruits for sale underneath the searing sunshine, beaten down cars clogging the dusty streets, beggars reaching out to grab your arm from behind the blue burqa, and the smells of fresh kebabs and diesel mixing into a strange yet familiar scent. But behind the weathered faces, the bustle and the stalls brimming with bread exists a drastically transformed country in limbo. Despite the announcement of a partial interim government last week, many services, which were propped up by foreign aid over the past two decades, have not been reinstated, given the government cannot govern without money. Most ministries you visit are without personnel, except for a few armed fighters who sit haplessly in the heat outside. Every Talib you encounter is different. There is no one-size-fits-all. Some still roam with coal-rimmed eyes and traditional dress and look as though they are far from home in the urban landscape, still clutching an M4 close as if ready for battle. Others have reformed their image to don an Afghan security forces uniform slapped with a freshly embroidered emirate patch. Some take the Pashtun Wali code of hospitality for foreigners very seriously, offering tea and sweets during meetings. Others are abrupt and bark orders not to speak to the people and demand to see identification. Most won't make eye contact or acknowledge me as a woman, but occasionally you will find one who looks me dead in the face. However, the Taliban foot soldiers outside government buildings are everywhere. They roll through the streets in armored US trucks with American weapons strapped to their backs, their flags flapping high on almost every government building, street corner and institution. Afghans no longer blink an eye, having quickly adapted to the new ruling class around them. Yet there is a strange sense of law and order that comes with their imposing presence. 
Security-wise, it has been perfect. There have been no robberies, no kidnappings, nothing. Before, we could not walk around. Criminals with guns would take our mobile phones and money and everything, says Faisal Mohammed, 55, who has owned his barbershop for 35 years. Now, there's none of that. Mohammed notes that the Taliban have yet to issue any formal decree on whether men must grow beards as they were forced to do during their last reign, which would ultimately hurt his business. Yet he weathered it last time and vows to struggle through it again. Taliban members have been themselves have been in themselves to be groomed, and while Mohammed typically charges the equivalent of around three dollars for a cut, he says he says Talibs put just one dollar on the table and leave. You still see occasional acts of rebellion, such as smoking cigarettes in the street and men wandering in skinny jeans and a fake designer t-shirt. What you still do see are visceral signs of people clutching onto the past and moving forward all the same. You want to buy a Taliban flag? Another child, who appears about eight, with his sun-touched face and light eyes, as he asks our taxi cab, comes to a halt in the gridlock traffic. His determined face cracks into an almost cheeky smile. Or oh, you want this one, he continues, pulling out the red, green and black flag that one month ago still flew atop the presidential palace. Taliban bring back virtue ministry, stoning and amputations for major sins. The Taliban reinstatement of the Ministry for Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice, which was abolished following the U.S. occupation, sent a collective shudder through many Afghans who remembered it for its strict interpretation of Islamic law. The main purpose is to serve Islam, therefore it is compulsory to have a ministry of vice and virtue. Muhammad Yusuf, who says he is around 32 years old and responsible for the central zone of Afghanistan, tells me from inside his Kabul office, we will punish as per the Islamic rules. Whatever Islam guides us, we will punish accordingly. Actions will be taken on the quote-unquote major sins of Islam, such as sexual intercourse outside marriage, killing someone, and theft, he said. Islam has its rules for major sins. For example, killing someone has different rules. If you do it intentionally, if you know the person and intentionally kill the person, you will be killed back. If not intentional, there might be another punishment, like paying a certain sum of money, Yusuf continues. If there is a theft, the hand will be cut off. If there is a legal intercourse, they, violators, will be stoned. He claimed that both the male and female miscreants would be executed in the draconian manner, although stoning has previously been the group's mode of punishment for women. Yusuf says four witnesses are required, and those witnesses should all have the same story. With an arsenal of US-made weapons, the Taliban stormed through Pangaea. This valley has long been a place of military mythology. Pangaea was the pivot point, the legend goes, that repelled the Soviet invaders in the 1980s and the only province not to fall to the Taliban in the 1990s. It was the lone, majestic parcel of peace throughout the US-led war of the 2000s. And it was hoped it would be a final frontier of anti-Taliban resistance following the dizzying Taliban takeover in 2021. But from where I sit, Travelling through all eight districts of the prized Pangaea Valley, the Taliban dominance through the main thoroughfares is absolute. Some 8,000 fighters belonging to the former insurgency oversee the main roads and infrastructure. White and black flags flutter high on billboards and government buildings, mosques and abandoned market squares. While the local National Resistance Front is said to still be battling it out in caves and crevices 
in and around the distant mountains, it is evident that they face a chilling fight against American-made weapons inherited from the defunct Afghan National Army. The Taliban roll through the winding tracks, primarily wielding American M4-style rifles and the occasional SAW and PKM. Several 50 caliber machine guns are also hoisted on the back of trucks. Some Taliban possess armored vehicles, and others have small, battered cars, still emblazoned with stickers of the famed leader who last threw them back, Ahmad Shah Massoud, the Lion of Pangaea, whom Al-Qaeda assassinated in 2001, two days before the 9-11 attacks. Taliban leaders repeatedly make their point clear. Surrender, or we use force. Afghanistan on brink of economic collapse as cash crisis deepens. Ever since the Taliban took over Afghanistan's capital on August 15, the country's already fragile economy has spiralled into despair. Foreign assistance, which previously propped up the nation of 38 million, was immediately frozen. The US halted 9.4 billion in reserves to the country's central bank. The International Monetary Fund and World Bank have also halted loans, and the Financial Action Task Force, the France-based global terror funding watchdog, warned its 39 full members, nations, to block Taliban assets. With much of the international community refusing to acknowledge and recognize the Taliban regime, officially termed the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, hard cash is barely trickling in. The currency has been crumbling, or while prices for essential goods have been soaring, and the financial crisis is fast morphing into a humanitarian catastrophe. The United Nations this week pledged more than $1 billion in aid for Afghanistan, cautioning that 97% of the population could soon plummet below the poverty line, up from the pre-Taliban takeover figure of 72%. Most Taliban members themselves are not to have received sal salary in months. As a result, a significant portion of foot soldiers in areas outside major cities subsist on little food and carry around thin blankets to sleep in trucks or wherever there is suitable shelter. Sources tell me Taliban members get quote-unquote sponsored by community members who give them food and other needed supplies. They also get handouts from commanders when they take over new areas or find cash. Afga Afghans come from miles away to wait in line for the opportunity to withdraw the equivalent of $200 the maximum any Afghan can take from their bank account per week, given the drastic cash shortage in the newly Taliban-controlled country. But the worse the economic impasse gets, the more unrest the Taliban will be forced to combat, peacefully or otherwise, as embattled Afghans push back. In Afghanistan, music and musicians go silent. Hundreds of shining faces, sheathed in sequins and sparkles, filled a majestic wedding hall on Saturday night. Tiny girls through to the adults and the elderly danced spiritedly into the early hours of the morning as traditional Afghan music blared through the speakers. The men, always seated in an adjacent hall where the two sides are divided by a wall as per cultural custom, also grooved through the night. It was beautiful to see Afghans coming back to life for a wedding, a prominent staple of their lives, even amid the trying times of the Taliban takeover. Yet it was somewhat sad too. We always have live music at our weddings, one male guest tells me outside as a storm brews, a clear sign that summer has given way to the winds of fall. But there are no more musicians, everyone has left. From where I sit, having spent weeks on the ground before and after the country crumbled into Taliban control, 
the self-censorship and fear artists continue to endure is palpable. All the artists and journalists and filmmakers I knew have escaped or disappeared into the barren basements of their homes. And the music industry is no exception. While the top echelons of the Taliban, formerly termed Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, claim that they are not the same stringent leadership that imposed harsh Sharia law two decades ago, music is one aspect they have not let up on. Music will not be allowed in public, spokesman Zabiullah Mujahid has vowed, adding that no official decree was needed. The streets in the capital Kabul are slowly coming back to life, with more people flooding the markets and mosques and business centres and the ancient roads clogging fast with diesel-spewing motorcycles and old cars. Yet the lack of tunes is jarring. The Taliban has long deemed music a corrupting lure. However, the Taliban does have its own instalment of music, and it's not uncommon to see fighters moving through the streets blaring in Nasheed, which are recordings of religious vocal-only songs. Live music and instruments have once again been come a no-go zone. And for one final observation, I'm often asked how to tell the Taliban apart from the regular Afghans, given that most men now are dressing in the traditional Afghan dress clothes. It's usually fairly easy to spot, hardened faces, beards, and a sense of confidence. But ultimately, the biggest giveaway is that they are almost always armed, a US-issued weapon poking out from a sling. And please note, uh, you can read more about all of these subjects if you can click on the links inside the newsletter. And the photos also featured uh, courtesy of my brilliant photographer, Jake Simkin. And please consider a paid subscription so that we can continue to do this work. And thank you all again for your support.